0: Welcome back, listener. Last week's episode was heavy. It seems that many of you ugly cried right along with me as I relived the story of my mother's death. From sob-filled voice notes, reposts on Instagram alluding to the good cries you got, direct messages telling me how beautiful the story was, to the moment my partner, Lisette, walked in the door, straight into my arms, cried and said, This episode was so sad. I couldn't help but nervously chuckle as I responded, It was sad, right? Knowing how heavy the last episode was, I knew I wanted today to have a little more levity, but still grasp the gravity of the topic. In order to do that, though, I needed a bit of a break from being so introspective. When I get into the state of examining, analyzing, and processing, It takes a toll. Facing the truths of our pasts, particularly when they're unpleasant, holds the potential to straight up knock us out cold. Like the time Lisette and I snuck away for a quick trip to St. Augustine at the beginning of our relationship. Don't get ahead of yourself, listener. Lisette wasn't the one to knock me out cold. It was self-inflicted, totally unexpected, and painful as hell. It was only a month or so into our official relationship that Lisette, in her thoughtful way, surprised me with a weekend getaway to St. Augustine. I was so excited. I hadn't been to St. Augustine since I was about 11 years old, and now I was getting to go with my new girlfriend, who I was and still am head over heels for. No one had ever planned a trip for me, let alone surprise me with one. So I packed a bag, And even further to my surprise, Lisette packed up both of our bikes on the back of my truck. I wondered, what do we need those for? It turns out she had envisioned us biking through the beautiful cobblestone streets of St. Augustine. Cool, I thought. After all, I had gotten a lot of practice riding a bike in the months just prior to our trip. It was prime COVID time with little to no, crazy Miami traffic. I had found a kid's mountain bike on Facebook Marketplace, more or less my size, and I would ride all by myself from 8th Street and 13th Avenue to just before the big Key Biscayne Bridge. The bike was purple, the tires deflated quickly, and in order to come to a full stop, it required a sublime level Kung Fu grip from both of my hands. But the bike worked and it allowed me to practice So even though I was typically a nervous bike rider, I felt confident that I'd be able to look cool on a bike with my girlfriend in St. Augustine. And to make matters even cooler, we were taking my brand new bike. This one was a sleek, light as a feather, tennis ball yellow, fixed gear bike. As soon as we settled into our gorgeous Airbnb, we took to the streets. Lisette rode Diamond Girl, An uber-comfortable cruiser with a wide-cushioned seat, raised handlebars, a bell, and a basket while I rode my cool new fixed-gear bike. Our first and last stop was the Castillo de San Marcos National Monument. As we rode on the outskirts of the fort, the sidewalks brimmed with other tourists as the salty air breezed in from the Matanzas Bay. Lisette and I wanted a closer look at the bay, so we started to trek downhill to see it. What happened next was so innocent, so absent-minded, and served as a harsh reminder of how much of a novice cyclist I really was. As I rode downhill, picking up speed wind through my hair, I noticed a swarm of gnats in my immediate path. I was heading right for them, and I'd be damned if any of them flew into my eyes. With my left hand on the brake and my right hand swatting away the gnats, I employed my sublime-level kung-fu grip on the brake to avoid running into a crowd of people. In a matter of seconds, my fast-moving bike came to a complete and total halt. My 140-pound body catapulted forward, only to be broken by my left hand, my left breast, and my left cheek. Holy shit. Though I was face down on the ground, I could feel the energy of worried onlookers beginning to close in around me. Ma'am, are you okay? I'm not sure if I didn't want to lift my head or if I couldn't. I must have knocked out cold, and when Lisette heard the smack of my body on the concrete and the crash of my light as a feather bike, she came rushing over. Despite the shock, I couldn't help but think. There goes looking cool to my new girlfriend, you see, I was used to braking on my purple bike, which took a fair amount of effort to slow down, but not this bike. This bike required a gingerly touch. To brake was to seduce, whereas I straight up violated. My biggest mistake was using the left brake, which controlled the front tires, thereby launching me forward like the world's most unprepared stunt double. All of this to say, similar to the way I held in my tears until I got back to the privacy of our Airbnb, where I sat on the couch and, like a little kid, cried in pain until a set brought me some Advil, ice packs, held me, and soothed me. Is the way I felt after last week's episode. But after a nap and some love, I pushed through massive soreness and a messed up hand to have the best weekend ever in St. Augustine. So today, I prevail from all of your love, less emotionally sore and ready to push through the discomfort of some more unpleasant truths. By the way, this episode will be published on November 27th, 2023, my dad's birthday. As you'll come to hear his story in this episode, I dedicate this to him as an acknowledgement of all parts of him, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I love you, Dad. And even though you're no longer physically here, I know you're here with me, probably drinking a beer, as you witness me tell our story, and are definitely the reason that all my technology today has been going bat shit crazy. Welcome back to Introspectively Speaking. My name is Amber Lynette, and today I'll be taking you on some trails. Don't want to sober up. The sun is killing my buzz, that's why they call it morning. Thought I was strong enough. Through my bottle at the sky, said God, that's a warning. Now, if you know me, then you might know that I love Post Malone. Those are his lyrics from a song off his latest album, Austin, called Morning. Spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The song alludes to his desire to be sober, despite the allure and false sense of wholeness drinking offers. What I love about his music is the contrast between who he presents as and how he actually feels. Yes, some songs are about fucking hoes and popping pillies, but many are about the conflicts inside that people don't see. Austin Richard Post, you are my spirit animal. And mourning resonates, because alcohol is a polarizing force for me. Especially today, at 34 years old, after having lost my dad to his battle with alcoholism, which today is no longer a recognized term, it's actually alcohol use disorder, and as I hold up the microscope to my personal relationship with drinking. I write today's episode knowing full well that it's going to shine a light on a dark place within me. As a matter of fact, this episode was tricky to write. How can I possibly convey and be uber honest with my audience, most of whom I know, that my relationship to alcohol is complicated? My biggest fear is that I'll get messages after this asking me if I'm okay or if I have a drinking problem. So I'm detonating the landmine before anyone else has a chance to. I, Amber Lynette do not have a drinking problem, thank god, but I have definitely misused it in the past, and knowing who listens to these episodes, chances are you've been a participant drinker with me, and have seen me intoxicated. Nonetheless, I'm compelled to reveal this part of me because it is a part of me. And as I am hyper aware that I may have a higher propensity to develop alcohol use disorder because of my family history, this is a way I take charge of my life and my future. So as always, I ask you to hold space for me as I choose to write about this because not everyone will. And I believe it's something that needs to be spoken about. Today, I'll be covering some sensitive topics, ranging from underage drinking alcohol use disorder, death, and spirituality. I am not a clinician or therapist in any way, shape, or form. Just a gal willing to look in the mirror and examine her relationship to the most used drug in the world, alcohol. I grew up around alcohol. I took my first sip when I was eight years old on the balcony of my childhood home in Brickell Key in a high-rise building called the Island Club. My dad worked there as the chief engineer of the building, and in exchange for his 24-7 availability to fix any maintenance issues from broken elevators, malfunctioning cooling towers, to major leaks, we got to live there rent-free. This was a different kind of work from home, and had it not been for that deal, we could have never afforded to live in Brickle Key. That's a story though for another episode. My grandpa and Grandma Srinan, my dad's parents, were visiting from Ocala. And on this particular evening, we sat on the balcony watching the cruise ships leave the port amidst a beautiful Miami sunset. Grandpa Srinen was a certified two-time war veteran, served in the Navy, and never did anything different with his full head of hair other than a military-style buzz cut. He was as American as they came, Jane smoked cigars, and loved his nightly glass of scotch. As we watched the sunset, I curiously asked him, What are you drinking, Grandpa? I could see the amber-colored liquid sitting in a short, clear glass, tossed in with a couple of ice cubes, and I was intrigued. You don't want this. It tastes disgusting. The curious eight-year-old I was, I really wanted to try it. Nuh-uh. Let me try it. Without hesitation, to the dismay of my grandma, but to the amusement of my dad, I took a sip of his scotch. Yep, it tasted like shit, and it burned going down. They laughed. My grandpa said, when I drink this, I can see color. This notion of seeing color when drinking would continue to be code for, I'm a little buzzed throughout my grandpa's life. I went to a lot of art festivals growing up, probably every single one, from the Coconut Grove Arts Festival, Las Solas Art Fair, to the smaller Rotary Art Festivals around Miami. I don't think my parents ever bought art, maybe some jewelry, but I do know a big part of attending the art festivals was all the beer that my dad would drink, and he would drink a lot. By the end of the art festival, my feet would hurt and my dad would be acting different. More often than not, we'd go with my dad's best friend, whom I called Uncle Phil. For some reason, I have this very specific memory of my dad as we were leaving the Coconut Grove Art Festival one year. He was drunk and taunting Uncle Phil, personifying his interpretation of what a gay man sounded like. He said something along the lines of, Hey, big boy. Oh, stop. Uncle Phil, annoyed, disregarded him. This was classic drunk dad behavior. My drunk dad, at least. Obnoxious, offensive, and always inappropriate. We also enjoyed going out to eat on a weekly basis. Friday nights were reserved for family dinner dates. We frequented Chili's, Friday's, Cheesecake Factory, Red Lobster, Outback, P.F. Chang's, and many more chain restaurants. We were chain restaurant aficionados. Dinner would always start with the drink order. My sister would order a Coke. I would order a Sprite or unsweetened iced tea. My mom would order a Coke and occasionally a Beringer White Zinfandel or a Presidente Margarita if we were at Chili's. And my dad, no matter where we were, ordered his standard Blue Long Island iced tea with soda instead of triple sec. One after another after another. Now, if you aren't familiar with Blue Long Island iced teas, they have not just one alcohol in them, but four vodka, gin, light rum, and tequila. It wasn't until I got older, in my teens, that our beloved family Friday dinner dates would become an event that I would dread, especially when my mom was in the thick of her cancer treatment. My dad could be what is referred to today as a Ken. God forbid my dad's drink order was off, There was usually minimal kindness in his notification to the server, rather an alcohol-fueled chip on the shoulder that there was something wrong with his drink order and it needed to be fixed, now. Did the bartender even know how to make this drink? It embarrassed all of us, especially this one time at P.F. Chang's. It was my mom's birthday dinner, and my dad had been watching NASCAR at our neighbor's house earlier in the day. That meant the drinks were flowing plenty prior to our outing. Needless to say, he was pumped and primed to make the evening suck. So when he found something wrong with his drink order, and my mom tried to convince him to let it slide, that alcohol-fueled chip on his shoulder gleamed bright. All of a sudden, it was us against him and his fucking blue Long Island iced tea. As we sat there and compensated with regretful faces to the waiter, I couldn't help but wonder what the waiter thought about us. Probably, poor family, this guy's an ass. I know now that my dad used alcohol as a way to cope with life. This isn't something that would become clear to me though until I started going to therapy. When life was going good, he'd celebrate with alcohol. And when life was going bad, he'd drown in it, too. Does this sound familiar to you, listener? All the times you've celebrated with champagne or shots, reached for a glass of wine after a stressful day at work, or cracked jokes with coworkers and friends about how your kid, spouse, or job is going to drive you to drink. No judgment. I'm no angel, that's for sure. It's just that I'd like to point out the sneaky ways alcohol seeps into our lives and into our language. Despite my dad's behavior, I started dabbling with alcohol at 15 years old. It was a six pack of Smirnoff ice and my two best friends and I, along with every other teenager on Key Biscayne, snuck onto the beach at night for a Getty. It was our first time drinking I don't even know why we did it, but it seemed that everyone else was doing it, and that was reason enough for us. I remember laying on a beach sailboat, looking up at the stars, sipping on my second Smirnoff ice thinking, is this what being drunk feels like? A little silly and a little giggly? Is this what my dad felt? Well, this would be the beginning of an underage drinking era that, listener, I cannot lie to you, though it was certainly a misuse of alcohol. There were a lot of good times and good memories that were made. It started with knowing where to buy alcohol without being ID'd, and where to drink it. My friends and I knew exactly the gas station we could rely on to never ask us for ID, but always be stocked with Alize. It then transformed to nights out at clubs and lounges like Mint and Rock Bar, always prefaced with a pregame and almost always ending with heels off, dancing on the club's couches to World Hold On by Bob Sinclair, and drinking from the same bottle as at least 10 other people during songs like Say Ah by Trey Songs. I was a true bata Socia. When I started working at American Apparel, my relationship to alcohol continued to get more intertwined. Between the ages of 15 and 17, my clubbing days, if you will, my underage drinking was more motivated by pure experimentation. But when I started working full-time at American Apparel, it was more about fitting in with the scene and unhealthy coping mechanisms. There was but maybe one night in an entire week that I wouldn't go out. Monday was Jazz Night at Churchill's. Tuesday was Fox's Lounge. Wednesday, Bougainvillea's for Ladies Night. Thursday, P.S. 14. Friday, Vagabond. Saturday, don't remember. And Sunday, we went to Purdy Lounge or Sunset Tavern. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. I went out and partied so much Because just like my dad used alcohol to cope with the hardships of life, I did too. For this was the one time in my life where, as I look back and realize it now, I badly misused alcohol during the two years my mom was sick with cancer. I was a hard-working but also hard-drinking, full-blown numbing machine. Don't worry, listener. Listener my habits got better and I haven't been in that place for a long, long time. But my pain manifested in other ways. I began seeing a therapist in June of 2022. And hell, if I had enough listeners and could get paid to be sponsored by BetterHelp, I would. If it wasn't for my first therapist on that platform that gently but persistently encouraged me to explore my relationship with my dad and specifically his addiction to alcohol, I may have never done it. I decided to try therapy because I was having depressive episodes, and it was impacting my daily life. The Dark Cloud Named Depression was a poem I wrote while in the thick of it. A cloud is looming over my head, a pressure building deep in my chest. A desire to know why, but no possible answer. A feeling of sadness swelling from within. Not in throat. Complete disengagement. A thirst never quenched. A bad dream that doesn't end. I was going through it. The worst of it was the feelings of apathy I'd experienced. It was a terrifyingly horrible place to be and I knew I needed a way out. Learning more about myself and my triggers has been beyond helpful. I know now that my depression was triggered by certain experiences, but was foundationally because of truths I haven't yet faced. First, I felt like I was failing at leadership and my job became a source of major dissatisfaction for me. Definitely something I will explore in another episode. Second, I isolated myself when I was feeling down. Like I mentioned in learning how to do depth, I do not like to burden others with my feelings. And third, the most crucial of all, I had never really processed my mother's death or admitted to anyone that my father was a burden to me. Even as I write it now, I can't help but feel so bad saying that. But saying it, first to my therapist, was the gateway to usher out the dark cloud named depression. It's hard to explain, but I'm sure you're wondering, what exactly did he do to you, Amber? It's hard to capture the psychological toll living with an alcoholic causes, but it's the fear of not knowing what kind of mood dad would be in the embarrassment of his public drunkenness, the energy required to be his daughter, parent, and therapist, and the trust issues that would come from all the lies and delusions, the resentment of all of it, and the extreme sadness over the fact that there was nothing I can do about it. Until one day, you just become numb. I know. So far... I've depicted my dad as someone you can really dislike, and on his birthday. I promise, this isn't a sick revenge episode. It really is a way for me to honor his story and inspire others. And it wasn't all bad, all drunk, all the time. There were moments of time where he wouldn't drink, and he was a great dad. The kind of dad that taught me how to swim that I could go to advice for, that would help me buy my first car, and would let me live with him when I had nowhere else to go after my ex and I were in serious financial trouble, and the kind that immediately accepted me when I came out as gay. That was the Dwayne Shrinan I loved the most. His abuse of alcohol was truly very sad, and though it most certainly impacted me, I have forgiven him and accepted him for who he is. Was. Understanding his past played a big role in helping me forgive him. And listener, his past was a little messed up. My dad was born to a Marjorie Newberry. I only know her name because when my dad had to move out of his house after he got fired from his last job and needed to move in with my grandma Shreenan, I inherited boxes of photos and important documents of which her name appeared on his original birth certificate. My dad was adopted, you see, and as far as I could tell, he truly disliked and maybe even hated his biological mother. I was always curious to know who she was, more out of curiosity for things like my heritage, another topic for another episode, but anytime I would ask him, He was plain and clear about it he had decidedly disowned her long ago she was no mother to him i did find out from my grandmother that when his older brother danny died from a drug overdose over 20 years ago that she showed up to the funeral as soon as she walked in my dad walked out and his father no clue but supposedly his last name was Riley. There was some levity there. Him and my mom would joke that maybe, just maybe, Pat Riley, famous NBA mogul, was his dad. So my dad grew up in the orphanage and foster system until one day my grandma and grandpa Srinan decided to adopt him after figuring out that they couldn't have kids of their own. The story goes that my grandparents went to the orphanage and saw my dad's brother first, Daniel Srinan. He is who they adopted at first. It wasn't until a few days later that one of the nuns showed up at their doorstep with a small, blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. She pleaded with them. The small boy was my dad, and unbeknownst to my grandparents at that time, he was sort of a package deal with Danny because he was his biological brother and they didn't want to separate them. After some consideration, my grandparents decided to take him in under the agreement that this would be a trial run. It was only two weeks with both boys under their care that trouble started brewing. Things like cash and jewelry began to disappear and somehow my dad was named the culprit. They took him back to the orphanage. This is the part of his story where my heart breaks for him. Because imagine, listener, he had dealt with serious rejection very early in his life, first from his own mother, and second from my grandparents. Though I never asked him how he felt about this, nor did he ever explicitly express a sense of rejection, I can only imagine that's exactly what he felt, judging by his complete disdain for his biological mother, and because of some of the things he would say after my mom died. Things like, She was the only woman who ever understood, accepted, and loved him. It turns out that even after my dad had returned to the orphanage, cash and jewelry continued to disappear. Danny was the culprit all along. When my grandparents realized this, they went right back to the orphanage and took him back in. There are... Darker and more traumatic things that happened to my dad, too, before he got adopted. Like how he was trapped in a house fire at a young age and almost didn't make it out. And even sexual abuse. I'm not going to lie. The wannabe Spencer from Criminal Minds and Me thinks that my dad had the potential to be a real murderous psycho. But thankfully, I guess, he coped with alcohol. Pardon my dark and inappropriate humor, but I get that from him. In the last year of my dad's life, we spoke on the phone weekly. Some calls were filled with genuine curiosity and happiness for me, and the way that things were going in my life. And other calls were painful, as my dad just needed someone to talk to, and that someone was me. Often, he would tell me through tears, that he was happiest when he was asleep. Ever since my mom died, I had been dealing with my dad's occasional expressions of not wanting to live. I'll never forget the one time, maybe a month after my mom died, that I could hear my dad clicking the safety on one of his guns. I froze. The best I could do was shout a few feet away from his door and say, Hey, Dad, are you okay? Sobbing and intoxicated, he responded, Daddy's okay. Don't worry. He would never do anything stupid or hurt himself. You can imagine the relief I felt the day he came to my room, sober, and asked me to hold on to his guns for his safety. When we spoke on the phone and I can tell he had been drinking, he would adamantly deny it. One of the big ahas I had in therapy, and based on the research, is that people who suffer from alcohol use disorder are often skilled liars for a number of reasons, ranging from avoiding shame to preserving the addiction. My dad was no exception. And because I loved him and wanted to believe him so badly, I'd often choose to give him the benefit of the doubt whenever he told me some questionable story. Lisette witnessed this happen often and would gently urge me to get with the program. Because of years of confusion and lies, it's unfortunate to say, but I definitely have trust issues. So when he called me one day and told me that he was in the process of applying to get a liver transplant, I wasn't sure what to believe. The energy of the conversation seemed urgent and excited as he explained to me the rigorous process and intense aftercare a liver transplant required, and then began to coach me on what I needed to say during the interview I would have to undergo as his primary caretaker following the transplant, knowing full well that I would not be able to commit to such an endeavor. What I'm trying to say is that my dad asked me to lie I guess in order to save his life. I was conflicted. What about you, listener? What would you have done? By the way, we never made it that far in the process. My therapist helped me to prepare for what I knew was inevitable. My dad was constantly in and out of the hospital, Usually because a drinking binge followed by a cold turkey day would send him into withdrawal and often seizures and suspected strokes. It was just a matter of time that one of these hospital admissions, he wouldn't make it out. And then that day came. His journey to his last breath would be a two-month ordeal. As usual, he was admitted into the hospital for, for withdrawal and water retention. However, blood work would reveal that not only had his liver already failed, but his kidneys were walking a very tight rope between failure and function. Dialysis was on the table, but the doctors thought with strong diuretics, he might, just might, be able to kick his kidneys back into gear. Now, If you're unfamiliar with how important your liver and kidneys are, allow me to explain it in a very non-scientific way. Your liver and your kidneys are like the filters you use for your air conditioner so that it can run properly and distribute clean air. Like the AC filter catches all the dust and nasties in your home, your liver and kidney catch all the nasties in your body. Alcohol is a nasty And when one or both of your filters are beyond repair, your body, like your air conditioner, will break. Well, he broke. It was the palliative care nurse practitioner who called me to clearly and kindly educate me about what was going on with my dad's health and painted a very realistic picture of his outlook. Even with dialysis, It was extremely hard on his body. The goal was to remove as much fluid as possible, but even with four hour sessions, five to seven days a week, the fluid just wasn't coming off. She recommended for quality of life that he be placed on hospice care. I was in a coffee shop working remotely when I got that call. And no matter how much preparation I had, I cried and cried. And cried. There I went again, losing yet another fucking parent. But this time, I wouldn't let the opportunity escape me to handle his death in the right way. Here is a journal entry I wrote on April 23rd, 2023 at 1140 p.m. Today I visited my dad on his deathbed He doesn't think it's his deathbed, but I know it is. It's really quite admirable, the grasp he has on life. If only he could've applied that grasp before it was too late. I've been mentally preparing for this moment, knowing it would come, but not knowing when. Besides, Dad is truly like a cat with nine lives, honestly, maybe even ten. This disease is a slow, patient disease, like Hannibal Lecter savoring a victim. The chase, the catch, the kill, the meal, it devours my dad. At least I got some relief today. Hearing him tell me that he accepts what is to come, it is what it is, and that just like my mom, if it is his time to go, he chooses to go in positivity, truly felt like a weight off my shoulders. To me, the worst part of death is not the how much I'll miss them part. It's the how are they feeling about it part. Do they accept the realest moment they've ever had in their life? Overall, I enjoyed my time with my dad today. We laughed. I got to look into his eyes and feel what he felt. There's something beautiful about pending death. The process that one goes through. The reflections, the regrets, the reconciliations. It must be a very if not the most, introspective time for people. I do wish that I had this chance with my mom before she died. Not really the chance, but because I had it, but the courage to have a real conversation with her. The next day, it was up to me to break the news to my dad that we had reached the end of the road. I don't know if it was lack of courage, communication skills, or compassion fatigue, but none of the physicians who saw him ever made it crystal clear that he had run out of options and that in his state, he would never qualify for a liver transplant. When I walked into his hospital room, I gave him a hug, took a deep breath, and prepared to have the most difficult conversation of my life. Dad. We need to have a very honest and painful conversation today. Okay, he said. I've spoken with your doctors, and a liver transplant is no longer an option. The look on his face was a mixture of shock and enlightenment, and told me that he knew what I was trying to say. At that moment, he relaxed his expression, crossed his hands, and calmly said, Well, thank you for telling me. No one has made it clear to me like that. And if that's where we are, Amber, then I'm at peace. And then what he said next kind of surprised me. He said, I've had a good life, and you've been the best daughter to me. This is the journal entry I wrote that night. Today, I consider myself to be the luckiest girl in the world because I got to have the most meaningful conversation with my dad that I've ever had in my life. One thing about my dad, despite all the hardships, is that he's always been a source of wisdom in his own way. Whenever I've had a problem or something that I needed some advice on, he always had the right words to say. Today was no different. Just two nights ago, I wrote about dad on his deathbed and how he hadn't realized it yet. Tonight, I write fully knowing that he's aware because I told him and he acknowledged his awareness. It makes me think, can you imagine your family keeping from you that you're dying? Perhaps I didn't have much of an opinion on it before, but now I do. I believe that a part of our death experience, should we be given the chance, is the ability to reflect on our life and reconcile with the fact that death is near. This will be my second experience with the death of a parent, my parent. And this time, I want the experience to be different. It's important as a family that we acknowledge this very real part of life. It's the one thing we all have in common. Why shouldn't we be able to talk about it? Tonight, I have a little more peace hearing from my dad that he is at peace. That is the greatest gift of all. Though my dad wanted to die in the comfort of his home with my grandma and Ocala, his medical needs, even though he would be on comfort measures only, still required around the clock care. We decided to spend the last of his days at Kate's house an inpatient hospice facility where actively dying patients can peacefully spend their last days. Let's talk about this, listener. I've essentially just told you that my dad would be in a hotel for dying people. How does that make you feel? For me, I admit, it was a little heavy. The thought of the spirits and energy of people who had passed before my dad in the facility did give me the mild heebie-jeebies. So, you bet, I saged and I Palo Santo'd the shit out of his death suite. I also brought in his favorite hats, photos, and his UM blanket. In his direct view, I hung up a picture of us when we were a complete family. Mom, Dad, my sister, and I in matching outfits for a JCPenney Christmas photo shoot. Calmly, I'd instruct him that if he ever felt lost, to look at that picture and he would be home. The best thing about him spending his last days at Kate's house is that we could bring all of our dogs to come see him. He absolutely loved that. I spent a lot of time watching him sleep and watching his favorite action movies in the room. He was a James Bond guy. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite memories of my dad was when we picked out his suit from my wedding. He said he wanted to look different than everyone else. So I told him, channel Frank Sinatra and James Bond. With a crisp white suit, he did not disappoint. About three days prior to his last breath, my dad began with the rallies and the death visions. The death visions were pleasant healing experiences for all of us. As we'd listen to his favorite country songs, he'd be smiling, looking at some spot on the wall as if someone was smiling right back. There was one time where he woke up from sleep and said, where's dad? Confused, my grandma responded, he's dead, Dwayne. He's been dead for a long time. My dad responded in his righteous way. I was just with him and he's looking for his teeth. At that moment, I knew Grandpa Sreenan had come to welcome him into the next life. Which apparently he had made it to, but without his dentures. When Dad and I spoke about the decision to move him into hospice, we made a deal. One of the things he was looking forward to finding out about was whether or not God was real. Now remember, this is the man who named me Our Lady of Guacamole at my baptism. So I told him, when he found out, he would have to go figure out a way to come back and tell me. So after he mentioned my grandpa, I asked, so did you meet God yet? Is he real? Yeah, he said, so matter of fact, and with a twinge of, duh, it was a beautiful moment. On the last day of his life, May 3rd, 2023, his hospice nurse and I chatted. She could see that while his body was ready, his spirit was not. She asked me if there was anyone he didn't have a chance to say goodbye to. To my knowledge, there was no one. Friends came to see him, phone calls were made. His ex-girlfriend even stayed a few nights with him. And both my sister and I had consistently given him permission. Then, it dawned on me my grandma Srinan hadn't given him permission yet. I felt so bad for her. This would be the second son she'd lose. A 95 year old woman unable to have kids of her own saved my dad from a life of who knows what and truly loved and accepted my dad as her own flesh and blood. I had a gentle talk with her and explained how important it was that she give him permission to go and reassure him that she would be okay. Before we left that day, she spent some time with him, and gave him the permission he needed. At 1.55am that same night, we got the call from Kate's house that Dad had died peacefully and in his sleep, exactly the way he wanted to. It might sound weird, but I'm happy for my dad, for all the times he experienced deep, deep sadness and pain and just wanted to see my mom again. He finally got what he wanted. And today, on his 63rd birthday, he gets to spend it with my mom in the next realm. Nothing brings me more comfort than that. As we come to a close on today's episode of Introspectively Speaking, my hope is that this story prompts you to take a close look at your own relationship to alcohol. Think about how it was or wasn't present in your upbringing, whether or not it's something you demonize. And if you partake, think about who you become when you drink it. Do you like that version of yourself? Do you have triggers that cause you to drink? For me, I do like to drink every once in a while. But I don't like to drink more than I like to live. And I don't feel like I need to drink in order to live. And let's be honest, listener. A hangover after your 20s is truly a terrible thing. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you resonated with anything I shared today, please do reach out. I'd love to hear from you. And please do take one minute to give this podcast a five-star rating if you're listening on Spotify or Apple. I hope you join me next time, where I'll be switching gears and beginning to dive into the world of body image, wellness, and diet culture. Until next time, sending you a big, big hug.